the most amazing event, in my opinion, in all of history is recorded in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Just from reading those verses, we might not see exactly how amazing this event was. But if we continue to read on a few more verses, we find out that at about the same time, angels appeared to some shepherds in a field some distance away. And they told them in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And a year or two later, not the same night, a year or two later, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem looking for one that they claimed was king of the Jews and wanting to know where to find him so that they could worship him. And they were told to go to Bethlehem. And there they found a child. And they did worship him. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This type of obeisance, this type of worship, is supposed to be offered only to God. And yet, here is this child receiving it. Can you imagine being a shepherd, coming in from your flocks and seeing this infant in a manger and falling before him as king of the Jews? Can you imagine being wise men from the east and coming before a little child who's, who's toddling and waddling around his mother's legs and falling down before him and worshiping him? The reason why this was so is revealed in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now I don't mean to take away from what was the most important event in history, which of course was when this child grew up and died on a cross and was buried and resurrected. But in my mind, this is the most amazing event in history. That here is this infant who is not just an infant, a child who is not just a child, but who is the Word of God, who was in the beginning, who was God and was with God, 
and has now become flesh. And we're about to have a baby. And we've got children. And I can't possibly imagine looking at an infant and saying, there's God. And yet that's exactly what we have in Jesus. God incarnate. Deity in the flesh. This was Jesus who came into the world and lived as one of us, died as one of us, and was resurrected to save us. I'd like for us to just take a few moments to think about Jesus this morning. What this means for our relationship. Who and what He was and is and what it means for us as His followers today. We're going to learn six things about Jesus who was and is the fullness of deity. Would you bow with me in prayer before we do that, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are amazed that You have allowed us to gather here with Your children, that we might study Your Word and be a part of Your plan that we might edify one another and build one another up, that we might worship and honor and glorify You, casting down our crowns, recognizing, Father, that we are unworthy and You are worthy. We are inferior and You are superior. We are the slaves and You are the master. We are the subjects and You are the king. Father, we lift You up and honor You and praise You and prostrate our spirits before You, worshiping You because You are the great and awesome God who created all things, who gave us life, and who even sent Your Son to die for us when we sinned. Father, we are so sorry that we've sinned and made that plan necessary. We're so sorry for the times that we followed our own will, for the times that we've lusted and lied, for the times that we've cheated and stolen, for the times that we've done so many things contrary to Your will. But we are so thankful that Your Son came into the world, God in the flesh, to die for us so that we could be forgiven. Help us to understand what You've done for us as much as possible. We realize that in reality it's beyond our finite minds to fully grasp. But help us to understand as much as possible so that we might serve You as much as possible. Father, we love You. And we thank You for loving us through Your Son, in whom dwells the fullness of deity, we pray. Amen. Jesus, the fullness of deity. Some things that we need to learn from that. First of all, we need to understand that Jesus is God, but He is not God the Father. Look there again at John chapter 1 and verse 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1, and notice what it says. In John 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This tells us two things about Jesus. First of all, Jesus was God. That is, Jesus was and is divine. He had the characteristics, the quality, the nature of deity. And yet at the same time, He was with God. That means that He was there with the Father, He was there with the Spirit, who also contained all the characteristics and nature of deity. What we have to understand is that we use the word God in two distinct ways. Sometimes we use it almost as a name. 
And when we're doing that, we're usually referring to the Father. If we say, God did this, or God did that, in such and such verse, God did this, generally we're talking about the Father. The Father did this, or the Father did that. And we're not referring to Jesus when we say that. But we also use the word God as a classification. He's not human, He's God. Instead of humanity, He has deity, or divinity. Instead of human, he's divine. He's not man, he's God. And so here's what we recognize from that. If somebody were to ask us the question, is Jesus God, we might actually have two distinct answers. If by that question they're saying, is Jesus God, the Father, is he the one that we normally call and name God, then our answer would be no, Jesus is not God, he's not the Father. But if by that we're asking, is he God? Does he have the characteristics of Godhood? Is he divine? Is he deity? Then our answer would definitely be, yes. Jesus is divine. He is deity. He is God. And we've got to understand that because it causes a lot of confusion. I mean, I remember hearing one time about a poll that was taken in a teenage class where they asked the kids, is Jesus God? And they all said no. Because they didn't understand the, the two ways to think about that. Usually when we're asking, is Jesus God? We mean, is he divine? And the answer to that question is, yes, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God, but Jesus is not God the Father. He is a distinct person. And consider the passages that demonstrate to us that He is God. We've already read John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. John 1.18, in some of the translations, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Look in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. Colossians chapter 1. In verse 19, it says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in chapter 2 and verse 9, it repeats it. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We can look in excuse me, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 this time. It says, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And also in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the Scripture there says, talking about Jesus again, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. There is no doubt that Jesus, while on the earth, while in heaven, from beginning of time till now, was, is, and ever more will be God. The fullness of deity. The exact imprint of the nature of God. Yet, notice John chapter 8, and find that He is not the Father. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Actually, I'm sorry, let's back up to verse 16. John chapter 8 and verse 16. Yet, even if I do judge, this is Jesus speaking, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. Now, how could Jesus say, it's not I alone, it's I and the Father, if Jesus and the Father are the same person. He said, I'm not judging alone. I and the Father are judging. Then in verse 17, he goes on. He says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He says there's got to be two people to bear witness, and here there are. There are two people, not one. I and the Father are not the same. I am bearing witness, and the Father is bearing witness. What is Jesus telling us? He's God, but He is not the Father. 
that we understand that Jesus is a distinct person from the Father, and yet He is the fullness of deity. He is the exact imprint, the radiance of the glory and nature of deity, of God. How amazing is that? I'm not sure that we can fathom that. I can't fathom that. And yet that's exactly what He is. However, while on earth, Jesus is God, but for this short period of time, He was also man. Again, I turn your attention to John 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Do you see what that says? The Word became flesh. The Word did not pretend to be flesh. The Word did not represent Himself as flesh. The Word did not merely look like flesh. The Word became flesh. I don't know how that worked. But I know that it did. Because the Scripture tells us this is the way it is. The Word became flesh. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul points out this nature of Jesus. It says in Romans chapter 1 verse 3, concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus was both flesh, man, and divine. God. He was both of these things at the same time. Look in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. The Scripture there says, Therefore, this is Hebrews 2.17, notice how important this is. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. The Word became flesh, and when He did so, He was made like us in every respect. He didn't just look like us. He was us in every respect. And then notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. I've once heard a person say, if we're going to talk about Jesus and speak where the Bible speaks, and be silent where the Bible is silent. And he went to the passage and said, we've got to say that He came as the form of the man. The Bible never calls Jesus a man. Well, 1 Timothy 2, 5. You tell me what it says. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is God, but He was also man. And there's no denying that. As we consider this before we leave the point, we need to recognize those two statements that are made about Jesus. We saw in Colossians 1 and verse 19 and 2 and verse 9 that Jesus is the fullness of deity. But we also see in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 that He was made in every respect like us. What do those things say? Jesus is not half God and half man like some mythical creature. Jesus was not God just wrapped in a human flesh. Jesus was not God who just looked like man. Jesus was God and man all at the same time. And I know we have all kinds of questions about that. 
I know we have struggles with that. I know questions come up about other passages. But the thing that we've got to understand is we can't allow our human logic and our human reasoning about trying to figure everything out to deny what the Scripture plainly says. Jesus was the fullness of deity and at the same time was made in every respect like as we are. He was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. And let's not allow that to bother us. Let's face it, our finite minds can't grasp God all by himself, let alone how God could be man. But we can remember this. The angel told Mary, nothing is impossible with God. If God said that Jesus is going to come into the world and he was going to be God and he was going to be man all at the same time, whatever questions we might have about that, we can study and we can pursue, but we just can't deny that God said he's the fullness of deity and made like us in every respect. But I want you to consider this. What that means is Jesus did not have a divine side and a human side. Jesus just was what he was. He was the God-man. Incarnate deity. I don't know how many times I've been in a study and gotten to Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus says, Father, if, if, if possible, let this cut past for me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. And we always say, now right here we're seeing Jesus' humanity take over. Right here we're seeing Jesus' human side. That's just not true. The Bible doesn't present Jesus like that. Jesus was not some Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, who had a God side and a man side that fought for control. That's just not what was going on. Jesus was God and man all at the same time. And everything Jesus said is not to be divided between what he was saying as God and what he was saying as man. It wasn't his God side taking over or his man side taking over. It was incarnate deity speaking. Every action Jesus took. We don't have to decide was that his God side or his human side. It was incarnate deity acting. That's Jesus. He was God and he was man and everything he did, he did as God and man at the same time. We've got to understand that. We need to wipe that out. Please don't ever again say, oh, here we're seeing his humanity or his human side take over. That's just not true at all. Jesus just was what he was. He is what he is. He was, in that 33-year span, God and man, all at the same time. And that's very important for us, because the third thing we recognize is that since Jesus is both God and was man, we find then that he is the perfect mediator. In fact, that passage in 1 Timothy 2, 5, you remember what it said? Just a moment ago we read it and emphasized the fact that Jesus was called the man, Christ Jesus. But look at that verse again. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus, who is fully God and was fully man, could then be the absolute perfect mediator, the one who comes between God and man and brings them together and reconciles them. And that is exactly who Jesus is. He is our mediator between humanity and divinity. He is the one that can bring peace between us. And God, He is the one that can wipe away our sins so that we can be right with God and reconciled to God. It's no wonder then that in John 14, 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but by Me. It's no wonder then in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 that Peter pointed out that salvation is in Jesus and there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. It's no wonder then the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says that we could enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood. His death. God as man on the cross. The perfect 
ultimate sacrifice mediated a reconciliation between us and God. In fact, look in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Colossians 1 and verse 18, here's what Paul wrote. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, excuse me, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is who Jesus was. The reconciliation. The fullness of deity and the body of flesh. And because of that, through his death, he has reconciled us to our God. Paul says something else very interesting there in Colossians 2. He says, because the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, we also must dwell in Jesus. Look there again in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Colossians 2 and verse 6, it says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. We must be in Him, because that's where the fullness of deity is. In fact, in Colossians 3 and verse 3, it described it this way. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life is supposed to be in Christ. It's supposed to be hidden with Christ. We're supposed to be in Him, dwelling in Him. And by that, we will be rooted and built up in Him. Look in John 15. John 15 describes this relationship, beginning at verse 1. John 15 and verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says we're like branches that need to be attached to the vine. Branches shooting off from the trunk. 
And if that is severed, if that's removed, then our source of life is gone and we'll shrivel up and die. We can't live unless we are connected to Jesus, unless we are dwelling in Him. Why? Because that's where the fullness of deity is. That's where the source of life is. That's what God is. He is our source of life. But I want you to notice that Jesus points out that abiding in Jesus is not just some type of ethereal, mystical feeling. It's not some attitude. It's not some emotion. He points out that it's a very practical thing. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. If you keep my commandments. That's what it means to abide in Jesus. It means to do what he says. We don't abide in Jesus based on how we feel. We don't abide in Jesus based on what we think. We abide in Jesus based on whether or not we obey. And Paul made that point in Colossians as well. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Paul wrote, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and when you do, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds, as Paul also said in Philippians chapter 4. This is what it means to be in Christ, to do what he says. And Paul also pointed out there in Colossians chapter 2, if you remember in verse 8, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition. He says, if you want to be in Christ, don't allow the error to pull you away. Be on your guard, be vigilant against error. Don't be taken captive by human philosophy, by empty deceit. Test the spirits, so to speak. Because there are a lot of things that seem wise. There are a lot of things that seem good. There are a lot of things that seem deep. But if it's not according to Christ, then it won't help us dwell in Christ. The fullness of deity is in Christ. That's where we need to be. In Christ. Dwelling in Him. Walking in Him. Rooted in Him. Built up in Him. Once we're there, though, because the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ in bodily form, in flesh, because God became flesh, we know that we can go to Him for help. Hebrews chapter 2 points this out. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4 and verse 14 it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because God came into the world and lived as us, He is able to help us. There's two things about this that, that intrigue me. Number one, God didn't have to come into the world to know how to help us. God didn't do that because as God, He had to experience humanity to know what we're going through. God knows all things. That means that it was God's choice to make that the plan. Why? For us. Isn't it just natural if we're going through struggles and trials that when somebody who's never been through what we've been through comes and starts giving advice, how well do we listen to them? You know, until you've walked a mile in my moccasins, just you might as well leave me alone. So what did God do? He walked a mile in our shoes. And he didn't do that because he had to do that. He did that because he knew we needed him to do that. The incarnation wasn't for him. The incarnation was totally and completely about serving us. Isn't that amazing? But there's a second thing about that. What I find interesting is in these two texts it says because he went through that, without sin, he can help us. And he sympathizes with us. Now, from a human perspective, when we look at people and the way they act naturally, if somebody has been able to do something and they do it easily, are they usually sympathetic with us who have struggles doing it? Listen, I know how it works. You got your kids in school? Any of you good at a subject your kids aren't that good at? And you're trying to help them? And what's it like? It's exasperating, it's frustrating, and you're sitting there telling them, this is easy, what's your problem? And they're crying and you're yelling. At least that's the way it is at my house sometimes, not with Marita. I wish it was her. But you know, the thing is, a lot of times for us, when something has been easy for us and we've succeeded at something, it's hard for us to be sympathetic. And you know what Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4 says is Jesus, He lived as one of us. He did so perfectly. He never fell prey to the temptations. He never succumbed to Satan. And yet now He is sympathetic and wants to help. He's not like so many who are around us who are impatient, harsh, unsympathetic. He wants us to come to Him. And He will give us help. And we know that he can because he succeeded. He obviously knows how to win the battle. And so the Hebrew writer says, let us draw near to him. We can find help there. And the final thing we recognize is that this means that he is our example. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. In heaven, Jesus was just God. He looked like God. He carried about in Him the glory of God. If you came into His presence, you couldn't help but notice, hey, that's God. But He gave that up when He came to earth. When you looked at Jesus, you didn't see God. You saw man. And in fact, if He came into the earth and started trying to say that He was equal with God, He would be rejected as a blasphemer. And that's what happened. Even though he had equality with God, it wasn't something for him to grasp. It wasn't something for him to claw and scratch his way saying, this is who I am. You have to treat me like this. He came as one of us. And he let us treat him as one of us. Even to the point of dying on the cross as one of us. And what Paul says in Philippians is that each one of us need to have this very same mind in ourselves. How many of us take our honor and the glory that we think we should have and it's something to be grasped and something to be held onto and something to be fought for tooth and toenail. I have my rights. You can't treat me this way. And yet he says we need to have that same mind that Jesus did. That we'll be willing to serve instead of demanding our rights. Jesus gave a great example in John 13. We've actually studied this recently. As he girded himself with the towel and washed the disciples' feet. The master performed for the disciples the work that in this culture only slaves were supposed to do. And he said, beginning in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The example here is not just about washing feet. It's about humble service. We need to have the mind of Christ. And instead of grasping our societal place, be willing to humble ourselves and serve. The one in whom dwelt the fullness of deity was able to do that for us. How much more ought we who dwell in him to be able to do that for one another? This is Jesus, God and man. The fullness of deity dwelt in Him, therefore we need to dwell in Him, following His example. There's only one way to get in it. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's our question this morning. Are you dwelling in Jesus? 